Thank you, Christ Church, United Methodist Church, for inviting me to share a message with you today. My name is Gerald Liu, and I bring you greetings from the Mississippi Annual Conference, where I'm ordained, Princeton Theological Seminary, where I teach worship and preaching, and the Church of the Village, where I'm a minister in residence. The first time Steve and I sat down for lunch, it was raining, and I was 20 minutes late because I was so engrossed in the book that I had missed my subway stop. But I guess he didn't hold it against me, so here I am, and I extend specific gratitude to him, Violet, Steve Pilkington, Brandon Batson, and everyone involved in making worship possible today. Thank you. Will you pray with me? Grant, O merciful God, that your church, being gathered together in unity by your Holy Spirit, may show forth your power among all peoples, to the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Sometimes following God entails defiance. Yes, defiance. What I just said might sound heretical, but our reading from Exodus today shows just how. The Hebrew people are multiplying, and Pharaoh is breaking their backs with hard labor day after day and literally beating them down. He's so set on destroying them that he orders the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill all the newborn boys. Shifra and Pua, however, fear God more than Pharaoh. They cherish the lives of the newly born more than their own safety, so they let the babies live. When Pharaoh confronts them, they allied his anger with a tall tale about how hardy the Hebrew women were compared to the Egyptians. They simply bore their children too fast, making infanticide impossible. Undeterred, Pharaoh orders every newborn Hebrew boy to be thrown into the Nile. When Moses is born, his mother hides him for three months. Then she floats him down the Nile in a homemade basket. His sister, who also happens to be a handmaid to Pharaoh's daughter, keeps an eye on him. And Pharaoh's daughter just happens to discover Moses while bathing at the river with a sly and swift decision to help her boss out, Moses' sister asks Pharaoh's daughter if she would like a Hebrew wet nurse. And guess who ends up fulfilling that role? Moses' mom. Over a thousand years later, the New Testament commends Moses' parents for their faith in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The Greek uses a masculine plural noun, pateron, that is rendered in English as parents. But we know from Exodus that the true heroines are his mom and his sister. Moses, so named because he was drawn out of the water, will later save the people of God by leading them through the Red Sea. He will deliver a nation, Israel, a nation that over a thousand years later, Jesus will come to save. Pua as a name appears again twice in Judges and First Chronicles, but it refers to males, not to the midwife in Exodus. The midwives, Shifra and Pua, are never mentioned again in scripture. Yet without them, the nation of Israel would have vanished. Moses would have no one to deliver. Jesus would have no one to save. Shifra, Pua, Moses' mother and sister, all defy in faith by bending their actions toward the truth of God over and against their own well-being. 
and their defiance in the name of God sheds light on our passage from Matthew. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to him, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus is the Messiah, the savior of Israel and the defiance of Shifra, Pua, Moses' mother and sister led to his arrival. Without the salvation of Israel and deliverance of Moses, there is no need for a Messiah. The Messiahship of Jesus not only validates their past actions, it also speaks now to our time and our future as a church. But it's difficult to reckon with. Hell may not prevail, but the pandemic has done a lot of damage to the church, given that we haven't worshiped together since spring and summer is almost done. It's okay if we've second-guessed the church's ability to endure as it's described in Matthew. We're keeping it going, of course. Although our sanctuary is closed, Christ Church is still open. We're making the most of being online. We even have an in-person church-wide meetup scheduled for 6.30 p.m. today in the Great Lawn of Central Park. But if we're honest, the future still feels shaky. Even if the governor and mayor give the go-ahead for us to worship in person again, will we want to gather like we once did? Will it feel the same? For those of us who have worshiped for years, or those of us with a keen eye for the current age, even before the pandemic, we may have wondered about the future of the church and the particular church that we love and attend. Christ Church. What is our future going to be? A historic building, a slick production, another location, ministries for youth, families, and LGBTQIA neighbors, as well as conversations about race and who we will be from the pandemic onward, and testimonies from our choir show our ministerial range. We can afford to preserve what we have and build upon it but we still can't tell the future and our place in it. For example, for every dialogue about race or every protest that we attend, it's not as if the recent wave of Black Lives Matter movements have consulted us for how to proceed or any other church for that matter. A people once enslaved are African-American siblings in God who as people of God bear some semblance to the oppressed Israelites under Pharaoh have not in the present day claimed liberation as a result of what we have done or said. In the past, it's also been completely the opposite. We have made it worse for them. George Whitfield, perhaps one of the greatest Methodist preachers of all time, helped introduce slavery to Georgia. The architect who designed Christ Church, Ralph Adams Cram, was an over-racist, according to historian Cameron McDonald. The founding three professors of my employer, Princeton Theological Seminary, all preached and wrote passionately against slavery and against abolition. They also had slaves. They are Miller, after whom our chapel is named. 
Alexander, after whom the first building you see on campus is named, and Hodge, a namesake for another dormitory and office building, and one of the foremost systematic theologians in America during his time, an inventor of biblical inerrancy. Those are just a few examples of Christians who thought that they were doing what they were supposed to, and instead were actually contributing to a long and continuous history of Christian transgressions against black people. Maybe our own family histories also coincide with owning slaves and Christian hypocrisy. So what do we do when we take an unvarnished look upon who we have been as the church, who we are under the current conditions, and where we go from here? I want to suggest that we should reclaim defiance as an act of faith. Like Shifra, Pua, Moses' mom and a sister, we have to overcome looking after ourselves first, refuse to do what we know is wrong, even at the risk of losing our jobs and our livelihoods, and choose to do the will of God, even if we can't see where it will lead, and even when it risks everything. In Romans 12, Paul encourages us to sacrifice our bodies as spiritual worship and to resist conforming to the world. For Paul, we must transform our minds to discern what is good, acceptable, and even perfect before God. But renewing our minds and seeking God's perfection comes with a price. It requires fooling ourselves into believing and living into a gospel that seems like a lie. It means defying our sinful past and living into a holy future. It means resisting giving up on the world and living with a deeper anchor in the hope of God. What I mean is that on any given day, in any borough, and anywhere in the tri-state area, we could find someone ready to dismiss the church, and even our church, as irrelevant or out of touch. What we see is what we believe. Science and empiricism are the gold standards for knowledge. Trusting an invisible God seems absurd. Plus, it only takes a quick glance at the state of the world biologically, politically, economically, socially, and environmentally to disbelieve in God. And for our neighbors to see our pretty building at the corner of Park and 60th as little more than a landmark to bygone mythology or something that's nice, but doesn't really make a whole lot of difference, if they think about us at all. How do we know that we as the church matter don't get me wrong, for those of us watching this, we probably already know how important Christ and Christ Church are to our own lives. But what about our neighbors out there who have no interest in what we do as a community of faith? When we think about them, and Christ calls us to at least do that much, and we ought to at least be regularly praying for them, do we just shrug our shoulders like any other New Yorker and keep moving along? Friends, in the last verse of our gospel passage today, Jesus orders the disciples not to tell anyone that he is the Messiah. He probably had his reasons for demanding their silence at that time. The Bible doesn't say why, but keep in mind we're only in chapter 16 and there are 28 in the gospel of Matthew. It changes by the end. At the conclusion, Jesus charges his followers with making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Plus, 
Our time right now is different. We live 20 centuries after Matthew was written, and we have an obligation as Christians to share the good news now, especially because the popular understanding of God's good news is so distorted, and especially because we need good news when the world is turned upside down like it is. If you're still in town and have ventured outside, then you know that our streets are alive with alfresco dining like they never have been before. But underneath them and inside and above the buildings that line them, people are hurting and fleeing. The MTA is going broke. Over 20% of New York City is unemployed. Rents are lower than they have been in a decade, and sales in Manhattan have contracted by about 50%. It's not a bad time to move or buy if we can, but apartment vacancies are higher than they've been in 14 years. Evictions are also coming, and so is winter. And the city is being emptied out already. So as a church, together, how will we acknowledge the Messiahship of Christ and prepare for his birth as Advent approaches in an urban landscape that is eroding and evolving every couple of weeks where the air we breathe and every building, including our places of work, education, play, and residences are lethal, where we have to rethink if sending our kids to school is gonna lead to the hospital or worse, our demise and we're singing in the choir or running into the police the wrong way could jeopardize our lives. How will we bear witness to the fact that God is still with us, all of us, inside and outside of the church too? As much as New York, America, and the world unravel, no leader or boss will ask us to slaughter male babies like Pharaoh did with Shifra and Pua. At least we're not there yet. But we have and we will be asked, even instructed to do things we know that will oppose the will of God. And those moments won't be written down at all. They'll vanish as quickly as they come. Many times, no one will ever know except us and God. When it happens, when we're tempted to ignore God's nudging inside of us and just do as we're told because it's a safer bet, will we transform our minds and defy what we know is wrong and choose instead to act in faith like Shifra and Pua and Moses' mom and sister, even when we can't see what the future will bring? Or will we choose instead to protect ourselves Shifra, Pua, Moses' mom and sister, and the disciples in Exodus and Matthew show us that it doesn't take much to change history for God. Sometimes all we have to do is refuse and state what is obvious. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. May we decide for Christ, Christ Church and dare to be him now and live into and share his love without fear and reservation and with full confidence that the promises of God never waver even when all we can see are the realities of tragedy and sin.